Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey friends, it's Dana and welcome back to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. On this week's episode, our guest is Bonnie Roney, who is a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor who helps women eat without guilt by giving diet culture the middle finger and improving their body image. So on today's episode with Bonnie, we're going to be digging into how to heal from the root cause of binge eating and disordered eating. So whether or not you identify with having either one of those, we think this episode is going to be really helpful for you because we're also discussing how a lot of healthy eating and like healthy lifestyle tips are often rooted in disordered eating behaviors. And more often than not, participating in these behaviors can actually perpetuate disordered eating habits, leaving you with a continually complicated relationship with food and your body instead of a more neutral relationship with food and body neutrality, which as always is what we are going for here. Okay, well, Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're really pumped to talk to you about a lot of really like clickbaity topics for lack of a better word, right? I mean, you talk about this a lot on your podcast, but we're going to be talking about binge eating. We're going to be talking about disordered eating and a lot of like misconceptions around those two things. But I really wanted to start with going back to learning more about you. So tell us about what were the most influential models of like a normal, you know, quote, relationship with food and body image that you had growing up? Hmm. Well, thank you so much for having me here today, Dana. I'm super excited just to talk more about this. You're so right. It really is such a click. These are all clickbaity topics and they're so just taken up by diet culture. So I think it's going to be really good for us to, to chat about this some more, especially with the holiday season going into January and just us all being hit with diet culture things. So a positive role model growing up, I've never been asked this question before. So I really want to think about it around food and body image. I'm really trying to think. It doesn't have to be positive either. It could just be like, this was one of the biggest influences on. Oh, so it can be negative. I have a lot of those. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I can answer that one. I was like, wait, positive. Where did this? Did I have any of those? (laughs) I can talk about negative, <laughs> um, but not, I don't want to say it in a mean way. Cause I know that most people don't intend to do harm, especially when we're talking about family members. So for me, I actually have a pretty unique upbringing where there were several women in my family who actually struggled with eating disorders. And so their behaviors were very normalized in my family. So we had my grandma, she just struggled on and off with eating disorders. And I remember Um, you know, my mom and her having some really serious fights about it. So that happened when I was super young. And then my grandma just always was preoccupied with what my siblings and I were eating with how we looked. So she would frequently comment on our bodies. If she thought we needed to lose weight, whatever it was, she'd say something positive or negative. So either way, it wasn't really helpful. And then my aunt, 
She also struggled with an eating disorder. So around the holidays, when we saw her, I would see her about every Thanksgiving, she would just engage in all of these unhealthy behaviors. But as a kid, I just kind of normalized them. And so when I became unhappy with my body, you know, as a teenager, I was like, all right, I have these options. I have what my grandma has done and I have what my aunt has done. And then I just started to engage in them myself, which was super unhealthy. But those were really big influences, I would say, that I had growing up. I also was pretty heavily involved in gymnastics at that really vulnerable age. So I remember being like 12, 13, maybe 14 years old and just reading books about all of the Olympic gymnasts and in all of these books they would state how much the gymnast weighed and they would be like, this is how much she weighs even soaking wet. And then, you know, I would look at myself, how much I weighed on the scale and be like, all right, well, maybe if I can just weigh this much, uh, you know, as much as this gymnast who is my height, then I can be come better at my sport. So those were also some pretty influential um, things I would say in my upbringing that shaped some of the struggles that I faced with food. Yeah, it's hard too because like I think what you said around how you normalized it, right? Because it was maybe never discussed that it was not healthy to engage in some of those behaviors. It's kind of like you said in a lot of ways really normal to kind of look at these behaviors and to think, oh, well, this is what people do. This is what the adults in my life are doing. And so therefore it must be safe for me to do because I'm my adults in my life and my caretakers take care of me, you know, and they're looking out mm-hmm. for me. So it's really normal to look at that and to think, oh, well, then here we go. I have the map laid out for me for how to handle this exact situation. I've seen it done by people that I really love and care about and who love and care about me. And so here we go. And I think I think in a lot of ways, I think it feeds really wonderfully into kind of one theme that we really see a lot in your posts on Instagram around what the patterns and what it can look like to have disordered eating, right? And I think those are some of the things that we naturally and culturally look at as completely normalized and things that we think, oh, well, this is just what life is. This is just what relationship with food is like, and it's totally normal, and it's it's not weird to, you know, use exercise to earn food. Like, it's not unusual to do that, or it's not unusual to obsess and talk about food all the time. So I think, I think it makes complete sense that they were influential, influential to you and your relationship with food and how it kind of like laid out like a blueprint for you um, into into the pattern that you fell into and then ultimately like where you are today, you know, which is pretty awesome, mm-hmm. you know, leading a new example for the generations that come after you and the people that follow you to see, hey, there can be another blueprint. So um, I think it would be really great if you could give some examples, like more examples of things like this and why they're actually disordered eating behaviors and not what we have normalized to be kind of like healthy tips as they can often be marketed to be. And we see this a lot on your Instagram. You do it really great with the great mirroring. Um, So yeah, we'd love to get some more examples of this. And you don't have to, you can pull from your family's influences or you can pull from just normal, normal cultural beliefs. Yeah, totally. And I think what you said, I have never heard it said like you did, you know, with how I had a blueprint. I've never heard that said before. And it like, it super resonates. And I just want to say for anyone who's listening to this, 
because I know my story resonates with a lot of people because they had family members who struggled with their relationship with food in their bodies. And so I just want to share, there's a term it's actually called intergenerational dieting trauma. And so many people are just fascinated when they hear this. And basically what it is, is that a focus on food and body within a family can impact generations to come. And so if you grew up with a mom, a grandma, or just other people, important people in your family who were really preoccupied with food in their body, it makes sense that you might struggle as well. Like this is literally something that, that happens. There's actually a term for it. And the best way to break it is by healing your own relationship with food. So I just wanted to share that because I feel like it's really powerful to learn that and to see um, the changes that you can make within your own family. If you start to heal your relationship with food now, and it can be a little bit sneaky because like you just shared, Christina, you know, like what are you asked, what are some disordered eating behaviors or why are they disordered eating behaviors? It can be so hard to spot and identify them now because they've been so normalized in our society. And I like to say that any type of disordered eating behavior is something that's going to take you away from listening to your body's internal cues of hunger, of fullness, of satisfaction. It's whenever we choose to listen to external rules that can really create and perpetuate disordered eating behaviors with food. So let's see, let's look at maybe intermittent fasting, for example. I know that a lot of people love intermittent fasting. (laughs) It's super popular now. And let's say that we have an eating window. So let's say you are allowed to eat in an eating window of maybe between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. What happens if at 8 a.m. you are really, really hungry, but you just choose to ignore that hunger? You know, that's taking you further away from listening to your body cues because you're then listening to all of these rules on what time is technically in quotes. You know, I want to say all this is in quotations, what time you think is okay to eat or not okay to eat. And then let's say you enter your eating window, you're starving. So you just start to eat kind of frantically, chaotically. You're out of touch with how your body actually feels. And before you know it, you're stuffed and you're past a comfortable fullness level. And this happens when we're listening to these external cues. And a lot of the byproducts of dieting that I see in my practice with people, you know, that that can look like disordered eating um, are things like sneak eating. So eating a lot of food in private. A lot of people tell me that they just, they thought that these, a behavior like this was normal even today. I had a call with a new client in my group coaching program, and she said that she was shocked to find out that other people do this, that people go through the drive-thru, get food, eat it before they go home, not tell their families. And she had no idea that other people struggle with it. When we feel the need to eat in secret, we don't feel comfortable talking about it. We feel shame about it. A lot of times that's because we're engaging in some disordered eating behaviors with food. Um, Other disordered eating behaviors could look like feeling like you You need to earn or make up for food, especially in the holiday season. We just see so many visuals about how many jumping jacks to do or something crazy to earn a cookie, right? Something like that. But the truth is your body knows exactly what to do with food. And when we engage in these compensatory behaviors, like over-exercising or skipping meals, that just takes us further and further and further away from listening to our body cues. So really any disordered eating behavior can stem from listening to a lot of external rules like dieting. And it can look, it can just look at in a variety of different ways. Um, so like I shared the sneak eating in private, it can look like exercising to earn your food. It can look like skipping meals. It can look like, um, basing how much you allow yourself to eat or not eat based off what you're 
uh, weight is that day after you weigh yourself. It can look a lot of different ways. Does that answer your question, Christina? Oh, 1000%. It it absolutely does. And I think you put it really succinctly because I think a lot of times people will come to me and say, well, I don't know if I have disordered eating or an eating disorder. And then but when you put it like, oh, it ta- you listen to external rather than internal is just the most simplistic way of looking at it. And then the more you, you dive into that and say, well, why are we having, why are we making some of the food decisions that we're making? Like what's influencing those? And then you start to see, oh, I get it now. <laughs> you know, I can see it all kind of laid out like, oh, I'm not listening to myself. I don't even know what that sounds like. Or a lot of clients, and I'm sure you see this too, have no idea even what their body is telling them or not, because they're so tuned, been, been so trained to tune out what their body is talking to them about and what it's asking for that a lot of times my clients will come to me and say, I don't know what it feels like to feel hunger or to feel, um, or to feel satisfied. I really only know frantic, I'm starving now. Um, and so it, I think, yes, you answered it beautifully. And I think it's a really simple way of saying, hey, do I feel like I know what's going on and I have um, a semblance of of understanding and intuition here that's being that's playing a role? If the answer is not as much as I'd like, <laughs> then I think it would be worth exploring, you know, in like the simplest way. And again, I think one of the things too, and this is kind of like a tangent a little bit, but I think one of the things that's difficult with working with with people with eating disorders and disordered eating too, is that a lot of times people will think, well, it's not bad enough, you know, is like a big piece of it too. And I, I really think like every single person listening to this, if you feel like you're not, you're listening more to things that have been told to you externally versus things that you're hearing internally, then you deserve to explore that more deeply, whether without having a formal diagnosis or even having a name, you have the right to just to explore it. And just say, hey, I want to learn more about what's going on with that. And it doesn't have to be this new declaration of, I'm going to heal all my intergenerational dieting trauma because that can feel really overwhelming for an individual person. But with one step of exploration, you start the the undoing and the pattern of healing all of that, which is kind of cool. So yes, in a tangent, yes, you answered my question. <laughs> but I, I like your tangent because a, a lot of people do say that they feel like they're not bad enough to get support or they don't have an official eating disorder. They've just dieted. So they don't really need help. But the truth is if your relationship with food causes you guilt, stress, anxiety, all of these negative things, then you deserve to get help and it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to admit that you struggle. And one way I like to kind of, um, identify if this could be an area that you need support in is how do you feel even talking about it? Do you feel emotional when you start to talk about your relationship with food? Are you able to talk about it to people close to you in your life? Have you ever talked about it? Because in my experience working with hundreds of clients who struggle with this, usually I'm one of the first people they ever tell about their struggles. And it can feel like a lot. You know, sometimes there's some tears that start flowing <laughs> and it's okay. It's normal. It makes sense. Or there, you can just tell there's a lot of emotions attached to this. So if it's hard for you to talk about this, that could also be a sign that this is something you are really struggling with. And you're at that point where you could probably benefit from some healing. And I think what makes this really hard too is the struggle is so 
normalized, especially for women, right? And even for men, like this isn't something that men are supposed to be struggling with, right? So a lot of men will not get the help that they need if they're struggling with these kinds of thoughts. But then going back to your story, Bonnie, when you were talking about how like this was an intergenerational thing is this was just completely normalized. Of course, you kind of just fell into those patterns because you didn't have any other models, right? Especially being in the gymnastics world, like I was in the swimming world, Christine was in the dance world, like we all come from very body conscious sports. And so when you're in that world and one of the hyper focuses in your sport is your body because of what you're wearing or what you're being judged on or, you know, whatever it is, it's really hard not to fall into those kinds of patterns. But then the problem is when you're an adult, you don't get any counseling or anything like formal on like, so that was really problematic and we're going to try and go another way because a lot of what you experienced, while it is very specific to your sport and very normalized in your sport, that doesn't mean it's optimal. And a lot of the time, I think we do this a lot in our work is focusing on the difference between what's normal and what's optimal, right? A lot of people will say like what's normal and what's healthy, like what's unhealthy and what's healthy. But if we're thinking about this pattern that a lot of people will fall into, one of the reasons that I think that they don't seek out help is because they don't even know that it's a problem because it's so normalized in diet culture and even in when we're thinking about, you know, the functional medicine functional medicine side of things, it's all these elimination protocols to heal your symptoms or whatever it is. And it is so incredibly normalized. That's like, oh yeah, this is just what I'm supposed to do. And then they even normalize it on the other side of those protocols. They're like, oh, if you feel a little bit out of control around food, it's because you were just on the protocol, but they don't talk about the feeling un like out of control around food as a symptom of you being on that protocol. And wait a minute, your symptoms aren't actually getting better when they were supposed to be getting better. So it makes a lot of sense. And then on, on the other side of things, there's also this kind of shame element of no one ever wants to admit that there's something wrong with them, which then plays into this other thing of like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. It's normal. It's like, but but there's there's a problem with what everybody is doing, you know? So I think it makes it, there's like a lot of barriers to even just admitting that, wait a minute, this is normal, but this isn't how I want to live my life because this doesn't feel like a peaceful, like harmonious or even just neutral relationship with food in my body because I'm constantly thinking about it. Mm. Yeah, and actually what you said, and I, I can only imagine with you two being in the gut health space, like how frustrating it probably is to hear about all the elimination protocols and just blaming food on all of, on everything. And we know that it can extend far beyond food. Um, and anyways, these elimination protocols, like whole 30, they're just, it's just not what, what we need. Um, when we're talking about things like gut health, but it, what you said reminded me, Dana, of the diet cycle, when you said how these protocols even kind of normalize feeling out of control with food later because you've been restricted. And when we look at the diet cycle, basically diets make you believe that you need to have like a program or rules to not be or feel out of control with food, but really it's the diet that's making you feel out of control with food. So if we look at how the diet cycle starts, basically we have this desire to lose weight, right? So then we get on a diet and we follow this plan of rules and all these things. And typically when we start a diet, it feels easier in the beginning because we get this false sense of comfort and safety by having all of these rules. And it's easy to stick to for a little, but if the listeners on here have been on any diet, you can probably relate that it's not sustainable. It's not something you can stick to in the long term. So eventually you start to kind of fall off the wagon as people say, go against the dieting rules. And then before you know it, 
you might start to feel out of control with food and start eating all of these foods that were not allowed on the diet. And so then that makes you think that because you are out of control, you need the plan to get you back uh, into a place of feeling more in control. But what we don't talk about enough is that these behaviors, the out of control behaviors happen because you've been restricted, because you've been on this crazy, unsustainable plan. And it's just your body's normal way of responding by feeling out of control with food and wanting to get more food. It's how we respond to any type of starvation and mental mental restriction can do the same thing too. And I think that's really important to note because a lot of people will say, well, I don't physically restrict food. I eat whatever I want. And it's like, okay, well, what are your thoughts? Are you telling yourself, well, you can have one cookie, but not two. You can have one piece of pizza, but not three. You know, all of that can play a role into these behaviors around food. So we really have to look at them and and be able to identify and say that it's this diet cycle that's making us feel this way around food, that's making us out of control, guilt-ridden, obsessive, and blame the diet instead of blaming yourself or blaming yourself for not having enough willpower or discipline because that's just not the case. Yeah, it's um, to me, I feel like that's talked a lot about from professional to professional, you know, but a lot of times some of when I have that conversation for the first time with some of my clients, they're like, wait, what? Like what I believe about the food or what I'm thinking about the food is impacting it too, even though I'm not actively restricting myself. And I think it's just really important to kind of pay attention to that overall and to think about it from the perspective of, well, if my beliefs about a certain food can impact the way that my body reacts to and behaves with that food, imagine how much my actual behavior impacts the way that I, like how I interact with food on a day-to-day basis. And so to me, I think it's really interesting. And so I always love hearing about how people like clawed their way out (laughs) of their own disordered eating cycle. And because I think especially too, when, when you don't have a blueprint, for what it can look like to have a quote unquote, I don't like using the word healthy relationship with food. I think of it reciprocal relationship with food instead. But if you don't have that blueprint, how do you get your way out of it? So with you in mind, how did you find your way out of your own disorder eating cycle? I wouldn't recommend doing it the way I did. <laughs> Same. My way was probably it took not me- the best way either. <laughs> It took me too long because I was stubborn and I was resistant to getting support. So I decided to become a dietitian because I thought it would fix my issues and all of these things. Um, And then it really wasn't until after I, I mean, a lot of the things I learned while becoming a dietitian did help. I have to say that, you know, learning about the science behind carbohydrates, for example, and how we actually really do need them and how they're actually really not bad. So a lot of that was super helpful in my schooling, but it wasn't until I came upon intuitive eating, I think that I was really able to completely heal my relationship with food. And I always say this is like a journey. And I even notice now, you know, like my relationship with food today, it's different than it was a year ago, three years ago, five years ago. So it's always improving and growing. So it's not something that you just do for three months or one month or 30 days or whatever and stop. Um, It's something that really takes a lot of time. So I didn't really have a good blueprint for healing. And I mean, it it made my struggle last a pretty long time. Like I, I think I began struggling when I was maybe 12 years old or so. And then 
Um, you know, when I went through my schooling to become a dietitian, I would say the restriction wasn't there as much, but I had a lot of negative thoughts around food. Um, even before I got married, for example, I was eating vegan to try and lose weight. And that was four years ago. So it didn't like totally help me heal my relationship with food a hundred percent just becoming a dietitian, it was learning about intuitive eating and becoming a certified intuitive eating counselor and all of these things, because it, it helped me take a step back and really be able to look at the intention behind my choices and see why some of these things were harmful. So for example, eating vegan, isn't necessarily a bad thing or bad for your relationship with food, depending on why you are doing it. If you, if it's aligned with your values and something important to you like that, there's nothing wrong with that. But in my case, I was doing it to just try and lose weight for my wedding. And that was not the right intention. So, you know, it became a little bit problematic for me. And I think that one of the most important things I can say when it comes to healing your relationship with food and using an intuitive eating approach, which is what I use with my clients is that there's a lot more to it than just that unconditional permission to eat foods piece. And I think that when we look at social media, that's what a lot of people see. And they're like, oh, fun, food freedom. So I'm just going to have pizza and cookies and chips and soda. And while that is a part of it, if you are only adopting that one principle of intuitive eating, the unconditional permission to eat piece, your relationship with food might still feel a little bit out of control and a little bit chaotic. Um, and so when we look at intuitive eating, there's 10 principles total. It's a self-care eating framework. It combines emotion, instinct, rational thought. So as human beings, there's a lot more to think about to our food choices than just how it tastes on our palate, right? We can think about how we want to feel, which can be confusing if you're navigating life from disordered eating. I do want to mention that. Um, uh, we, we talk about, you know, uh, honoring your hunger, your fullness, your satisfaction, respecting your body, engaging in movement that feels good to you when it's appropriate, looking at gentle nutrition to pursue whatever health goals you have. So there's a lot more to intuitive eating than just that unconditional permission to eat peace. And I think that if I want any listeners to take anything away from this, it's that because, um, you know, intuitive eating is health promoting and you can absolutely pursue, um, like a healthy relationship with food by using intuitive eating. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. We talk about that a lot on this podcast and in our own like personal clinical practices because I think when you look at the majority of the, the social media kind of like portrayal of intuitive eating and really the main thing that you see is this unconditional permission to eat all foods, it can feel very exclusionary to people who, for example, want to be vegan or who have a chronic health condition or who do have, Christina, I have celiac disease, right? And so it like really depends on, you know, where you're coming from and what health concerns you have and everything. Because if you tell someone who has, you know, a really serious health condition that, they know is triggered by eating, you know, certain foods, which is a thing that happens, right? They can feel very excluded from the intuitive eating, even gentle nutrition framework, because if there's, you know, some random person on the internet that's saying, you can't be an intuitive eater unless you allow yourself to eat all the foods, it's like, okay, well then I can't be an intuitive eater because I have, you know, fill in the blank condition. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought that up. And then I wanted to kind of circle back to one thing that we're talking about before when you were talking about willpower and restriction and everything like that, because this is, in addition to 
disordered eating, whether or not somebody identifies as having that or identifies with the behaviors that we've been talking about, a lot of people will identify as having like binges or binge eating rather than binge eating disorder because I think it's been normalized a little bit more, right? And you do a lot of work on talking about how with binge eating, it's never been about willpower or lack of willpower. It's always about restriction. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, 100%. So I like to say that binges can happen really for two reasons, right? We can have a biological-based binge and we can have some that maybe are emotionally based. So as a dietitian, I always like to talk about that biological-based binge first because I feel like that's where um, I'm able to do the most help really because um, it's important to, to eat enough and make sure that you're fueling your body. So if you are not eating enough food, you are going to likely feel out of control with food later. It's just how it works, right? So if we basically starve ourselves all day long and then we're finally around food, you know, what do you expect to happen? And I think a really big piece of what I talk to most of my clients about is just creating normalcy in their relationship with food, like eating consistent meals, eating enough calories, eating enough carbs, eating enough fats. And when you do that, the obsessive food thoughts really start to kind of shut off and your drive towards some of these foods is going to decrease. So we really can't fight off our biology as human beings. We're wired to survive. When we restrict our food, then food becomes more enticing. The hungrier we are, food feels more rewarding. It typically tastes better. So just by number one, eating enough and eating consistently, it helps to kind of check mark off that the biological based binges that can happen. So it's really not a matter of willpower or discipline. So if you're listening to this and you may not even know if you're restricting too much, but if you've been dieting or listening to food rules, chances are you probably are restricting in some capacity. So we first have to, to heal that because you can't willpower your way out of being hangry or being starving. Like you're a human being and food's going to become more appealing and you're going to need food. So that's just that at the end of the day. And then we also have a lot of emotions that can impact, um, when we turn to food. And I love to share this part of the anti-diet book by Christy Harrison, um, highly recommend this book. So in the book, she talks about intuitive eaters and dieters and what happens when they're dealing with hard emotions and how it relates to their emotional eating. And what she says is that for intuitive eaters, when they are going through some hard emotions, um, you know, grief, sadness, anything like that, their desire for food actually decreases. And that's because when we're stressed, you know, our need for food goes away. Our body doesn't know the difference between stress from a diet or being chased by a bear. So in that fight or flight stage, your need for food goes down. But when we're looking at dieters, when they're dealt with these hard emotions, like grief, sadness, whatever it may be, their desire for food actually increases, which is something really interesting to see. And so I like to say that just by healing your relationship with food, even though we may not be looking exactly at like stopping emotional eating, stopping binge eating, you know, when you rebuild trust with your body, improve your mindset around food, all of these things become an intuitive eater. Then when you're going through some of these hard emotions that may have previously led to binge eating or uh, out of control episodes with food, then you'll find that that actually starts to decrease some. And I do want to say too, that emotional eating in and of itself is not a bad thing um, because it can actually be a very productive coping mechanism. And I'd encourage everyone to think, you know, what could happen if you viewed turning to food as comfort the same way you do 
any other coping mechanism like journaling or going for a walk or taking a bubbly bath. Um, when we can view it in more of a positive light, then we're able to make it more of a kind of productive experience. And a lot of these unhelpful dieting beliefs that we have around food can really perpetuate more binges or out of control eating episodes. And I keep saying out of control eating episodes because not everyone struggles with binge eating. I mean, some people may think they do, but I've worked with clients who thought eating two servings of cookies was a binge and it's really not a binge. You know, usually a binge is when we're, we feel this complete loss of control around food, almost feel like you black out and you're, you typically eat a very, a larger quantity of food and it's followed by feelings of guilt, of shame, all of these negative feelings. So there is a difference between some out of control eating and binge eating. But at the end of the day, if it's stressing you out and it's giving you a stressful relationship with food, you deserve to, um, you know, be able to find healing from it and, and really get the support that you need. But back to how some beliefs can really perpetuate this is that, you know, when we're dieting, it really increases that last supper mentality around food, you know? So let's say you're starting a diet on Monday and you know, you're going to be cutting out cookies and all the carbs that you love. So on Sunday, you might feel like you have that need to eat as much of the carbs and as much of the cookies and all of those things that you can before you start that diet. So this is that all or nothing mentality. You're either really restrict restrictive and rigid around food or you're out of control and just eating everything. And so when we can move away from this whole diet mentality that we have to start a diet on Monday or start over or that, you know, if we eat one cookie, we might as well eat the whole sleeve when we can break up with that mentality then we're able to enjoy food more and make it more of a connected experience. When we enter these out of control frenzies, when it's chaotic, when we're not connected to the eating experience, it's not going to feel enjoyable. And the big thing about intuitive eating is connecting to the eating experience. We want to know how does the food taste to you? Do you actually enjoy it? How does it make you feel? Um, I know that I said a lot. I kind of went off on a really big tangent on that. But ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that out of control eating behaviors are complicated. It doesn't come down to just a matter of willpower or discipline. Um, if you feel this way around food, it's likely a product of being restrictive or being stuck in some type of diet mentality that leads to the all or nothing mindset, the last supper mentality, and all of these things can make you feel more out of control with food. That's so true. I mean, I honestly, Dana's like, done, show over. <laughs> mic, mic drop. I think it's very true. Everything that you said around, um, around those out of control eating kind of feelings that happened too. And I think something that it was like, there's two things that I was kind of reminded of when you were talking about the biological and then the emotional piece with the emotional piece. One of the things that I was thinking about, I love that you really said that there, that we should give ourselves credit for using food as an emotion, like as a, as a coping skill too. And one of the things that I refer to my clients about when they're having, when they feel like they're struggling with that and they feel like it's their only tool is I say, we have other tools in our toolbox. We just don't know about them yet. And so we just have to learn new tools and then you can make a conscious decision. Do I want to order a cake and have that here and it'd be fun and it'll maybe <laughs> make our whole family feel better? Like, you know, cake Fridays or whatever it is, like was a hard week, like let's <laughs> have some cake today. Or do I want to instead have a quiet evening to myself, you know, chill out, maybe take a nice little soak or journal or read something or do I also too, like another valid one too, or do I want to put on Netflix and watch something and just chill out and, and binge watch a show for a little while and kind of like numb out in that way too. And I think thinking about it as a tool in the toolbox rather than this thing that I have to fight against, 
um, makes it feel a lot more liberating and makes you feel like you have more conscious choice over what you're doing too. And it doesn't feel as like it's controlling me. I have more of an, uh, of a mindful thoughtfulness around it. And I think that's a really important piece with that emotional aspect of it from the biological thing. (laughs) the, The way that I describe it to my clients is at some point you have to pay the piper, like the body's going to then demand the food. And so like, to me, that's how I describe it. Like at some point, the more and more we kind of restrict either it's the perception of restriction, like our beliefs around it, right? Like you, like we talked about earlier, or it's a physical restriction. I'm not eating within this window of time. At some point, the body's going to say, Hey, it's time to pay up. Like I haven't been fed yet and I know there's food in this, in this house and I want it now. Like, so you better bring it, you know, and it feels like in a lot of ways, I I think it's liberating. At least when I have that conversation with clients, they always like, no, that's how it feels. Like it is. It's like at some point you have to pay the piper. Like at some point the body's going to say, Hey, you're not giving me what I need. So I'm going to demand it louder, more clearly, and more succinctly so you get it. (laughs) And I think that's one thing when I think about that biological component is that that that's what it feels like. At least that's how it always felt like to me. Like at some point the body was like, hey, it's time. I need it now. (laughs) And it's like you become very specific about what you want. You know, it's like, oh, I want this from this place today, you know, or all the different things as well. So I think I really like the way you described the two aspects of it, like, and kind of gave the listeners here today, like, uh, a, a newer way of looking at it as it's not just this idea of willpower and discipline. It's multifaceted, and there's multi layers, and it could be both, right? It could be I might be going through a really difficult time, and this is the current toolbox in my tool, like like tool in my toolbox right now, and so I'm going to go for that. And on top of it, I'm on this crazy ass diet that I decided to start, and that's playing a role as well. And so it's like this perfect storm of this kind of out of control. I don't have enough willpower, and that's how I think how it's marketed to people too around, oh, it's not multifaceted. It's just that you're not doing a good enough job. And that I think once people hear that, oh, it has nothing to do with that. This is biological what happens. Um, I find to be incredibly liberating. So yeah, thank you. I agree. And I, I love how, um, just how you explain that, how eventually you have to pay up if you're not taking care of yourself. And Um, it's so important to get in touch with your body cues of hunger, for example, because that biological based binge, when you enter the place of being starving can actually feel pretty similar to when you're about to get into binge mode, you know, the, the out of control feelings where you're just like, okay, a binge is going to happen. So it can feel a little bit scary. And that's why we have to also understand the difference. You know, are you feeling this way because you're hungry or because you're going through a hard, you know, some hard emotions, because the way you can respond to both are going to be entirely different. If you haven't eaten all day and you're going to feel out of control with food, journaling and taking a bath or going for a walk, that is not what you need. Okay. You need to eat some food, but if you're feeling this way, because you have some hard emotions going on, then you can choose a variety of ways that you'd like to deal with it. And, you know, what we need to do is take the power away from the food. And this is what I always tell my clients when I explain this is that 
what if we could take a binge food, let's say something like cake and make it feel morally and emotionally equivalent to a food that you are neutral about, like maybe a handful of spinach. And when we do that, it takes the power away from the food. It takes that excitement factor away. It takes it off this pedestal that it's on so that if you are in a scenario where you want to use food as a valid coping mechanism, it's easier to do it without it feeling so chaotic and out of control. You can enjoy it more. And I have clients who do genuinely choose to turn to food sometimes for comfort, but it's a lot different than how they did it in the past because they stay connected to the eating experience. They realize that food isn't solving their problems. They enjoy some and then they move on and they deal with whatever it is that they have going on at hand. So when you take the power away from the food, it's so much easier to manage these out of control behaviors around food. Yeah. And one thing that I wanted to go into as well is like from the biological perspective, it's not only just, oh, I haven't eaten enough food today. It could be that your body isn't getting enough of, or if you have a deficiency of certain nutrients, right? So like taking the the pure like dietetics training and bringing it in here, let's use an example of like, let's say you're on your period. Like what are we losing when we're on our periods, right? Like a lot of iron and magnesium. So the typical dialogue around women on their period is like, oh my gosh, you just crave chocolate and like carbs and you know, all of these things. Well, um, newsflash, shutting your uterine lining is energy expensive. So of course we're gonna be more hungry when we're on our periods and leading up to when we're on our periods. And we're gonna be craving things like chocolate because again, newsflash, what's in chocolate? Iron and magnesium. Oh my gosh, that makes a lot of sense. And when I explain that to clients, they're like, oh my gosh, in all these years, I've been you know, beating myself up around my cycle because I'm craving carbs and I'm craving all these sugary things and I'm craving, you know, like chocolate and all these other things. And it's like, yeah, well, in all of these situations, your body's just trying to tell you something. But then going way back to the beginning of our conversation, when we've been taught to rely on those external rules rather than the internal cues, we then think that that's a bad thing because it's always tied to, oh, I'm just going to gain weight or I'm just going to be bloated or it's, you know, always an appearance altering thing. But I want to go even further with this binge eating discussion, because one of the things I know you love to talk about is how there are, you know, these quote solutions that people will say like, oh, you want to stop in binge eating? Just don't keep the foods in the house. Like, wow, no way. Never thought of that, you know? And so can you give some examples of these quote solutions that aren't actually helpful and how these can actually make the binge restrict cycle worse? Yeah, I would love to talk about that because there's so many solution diet solutions out there that can make you feel like you have overcome or kind of manage your binge eating a little bit more in the short term, but in the long term, it's, you're just not going to feel that way. So any diet, any diet would do this. So whenever we have, like I shared earlier, whenever we have a list of rules, food rules to follow, it feels easier in the beginning. Ultimately it becomes impossible to stick to in the long run. So if you're given like a meal plan or something to follow or a detox, that's definitely kind of like a quick fix solution. It's almost like putting a bandaid on top of what's happening or taking aspirin for like serious knee pain. It's going to come back. It's going to resurface later. And it's likely going to be a little bit worse because it gets worse each time we restrict. I know that some people will recommend not keeping binge foods in the house. Um, but then what happens when you're around these foods, especially with the holidays, you know, typically most people are around a variety of foods that society would label as bad, you know, the regular mashed potatoes and the pies and the cookies and 
all of these things. So at the end of the day, we can't completely control the food that's around us, maybe sometimes in your house, but it's not a long-term solution. Or what happens when you get married or you move in with a partner or a roommate and they start bringing in all of these foods that you don't feel comfortable around. You're going to feel out of control again if you haven't made peace with these foods. So a Band-Aid is anything that helps you feel in control in the short term, but it doesn't actually give you long-term um, peace with food. And I've openly shared one of my stories about how you know I used to identify very much as a clean eater. I wouldn't keep any of these foods that society would label as bad in my place. I lived with a roommate at the time. And I remember one night she literally brought home leftovers. We were in college and then she left for the night again. And I think it was nachos or something like that. And I just remember being like, okay, I'm just going to have a bite. (laughs) So I had a bite and then I had two and then I had three. And then I just ate all of her leftovers and I felt so bad. And when she came home that night, she opened the fridge and she just looked so sad. And she looked at me and she was like, Bonnie, I wanted to eat these. And I was just like, I'm so sorry. And I didn't want to tell her how I just like, I, I didn't do it on purpose. Like I just felt completely out of control. Like I couldn't stop myself. And that's because the solutions that I tried to implement by keeping only certain foods in our little tiny apartment, it worked when she didn't bring home leftovers or other foods I felt out of control around. But when she did, I hadn't made peace with those foods. So I was out of control. So I didn't really have a long-term solution. That's such a good story. And I think those solutions, those quote unquote solutions that your dieting coach or your Weight Watchers coach or whomever is telling you about how to manage it are band-aids for what's really going on. If you're struggling with keeping foods in your home and executing the plan that someone's providing to you, then you need to look at the plan. You know, you have to look at what is it that I'm doing and how can I explore? Why am I having such a hard time with these foods? I, it's There's actually, like, I don't know if you guys watch Ted Lasso, um, but there's a really great quote in Ted Lasso where he where um, he talks about this. He goes, you know, I used to think that I needed to like remove this whole thing from my life. He goes, but really, I just need to explore my relationship with it. And it was such a like succinct thing. And I remember my husband and I watched it. He goes, I feel like you're going to quote that all the time. now." <laughs> and I don't even think it had anything to do with food, but he knew immediately that it would that I would apply it that way. And I think that that is the truth, right? The more and more we feel like we're seeking solutions and quick solutions and band-aid approaches to things, to me, that's more of a signal of ding, ding, ding. This might be disordered eating and I might have these types of behaviors normalized and I'm seeking out support to continue to normalize it for me. Um, And to me, that like kind of brings it back like that full circle of, this is the disordered eating and how we've normalized it as a society to make it seem like it's okay. And it, in a lot of ways, it's not wrong, right? But it's not a, it's not um, addressing the root, you know? And I think that that's so important to kind of think about. And, um, and I do, I really do think of it as like, you know, those like Instagram red flag things now that's everywhere. To me, like that's the red flag. If I'm seeking out quick solutions, red flag, red flag. <laughs> red flag. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. We got to get to the root of the problem and really that's healing your 
relationship with food. And when you think about these diets, they really don't do that. They just give you a list of rules, but then what do you do when you're done? You know, I think of Optivia, for example. Um, I I always want to say Optavia, but I know it's Optivia. That's the right way to say it. But when I think about that one, for example, you get all of these like meals and snacks, you know, the program meals and snacks that you are supposed to eat. But then what happens when you're done? You know, what, what do you do after that? So maybe it made you feel in control in the short term when you were eating these little meals and snacks, but in the long term, what do you do? Like, do you even know how to eat? So we really have to get to the root of what's happening, which is healing your relationship with food. Yeah. Well, we obviously totally agree. And Bonnie, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. This has been a great conversation. I feel like we've busted a lot of myths and covered like so many of the things that really go back to normalizing disordered eating and binge eating and everything. And even though those behaviors are normalized, the terms that are associated with them are not normalized, right? So I know that this episode will be super, super helpful for people. So when people want to learn more about you and find you, and I know you have a new course that just came out, tell them where they can find you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me here today. I had such a great time. Um, If you would like to find me, Instagram is my main spot. So you can find me there at diet.culture.rebel. Hey friends, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions or comments about the show, feel free to email me and Christina at hello at wholeheartedeating.com. If you are loving the show, we would love you forever if you could leave us a star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts or share it with a family member, share it with a friend. We know that, let's be honest, everybody kind of struggles with this stuff. So the more ears that we can get this in, the less that you in your inner circle will hopefully have to hear about the diet culture craziness that we know is coming in January and for years to come. So thanks again, friends, and we will see you on the internet next week. I love how you're like, I don't know if you guys watch Ted Lasso. You know full well that I don't I know watch you Ted don't, Lasso. But I, know she, I was going to say, like, I know Dana doesn't, but... I know Dana doesn't watch TV. There was this um, sound on TikTok that was going around for a while that was like, I think it was like the Kardashians and one of them was like, I don't watch TV. And the other one was like, oh my God, you don't get an award for not watching TV. I know, right?